I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to uh, John 10 again. I thought it was going to be beginning in chapter 11 um, about the account, actually one of the most significant miracles of the Lord's earthly ministry is in John 11. It's the uh, raising of Lazarus. I thought I might uh, be starting there, but uh, I wasn't finished in John 10. Um, last time, and last time I uh, spoke, we dealt with John 10, verses 17 through 30, and uh, I think I might have read the the latter portion of John 10, verses 31 through 42. Uh, last time, I'm not sure if I read it um, here in the congregation, but um, this portion of verse 31 through 42 is our text for today. And uh, I have to admit that I thought, well, what is there to preach out of there that we haven't covered in other places? Um, but uh, there's plenty here, plenty here for sure. Let's read the text. I want to, you know, sometimes we, I, I want to challenge you, um, want to challenge the church this morning in listening. Um, you know, you can hear plenty of sermons on how to preach but there are some cases where it would be well for us if we had a sermon on how to listen, <laughs> how to listen to a sermon, because this passage is a little bit more difficult, I think, to, to listen, and uh, it's going to take your thinking cap. Um, you're going to have to kind of put it on and just, um, just yeah, it's, it's a little bit more that away, this, this passage we're dealing with this morning. So I, I want to just uh, say that here before we read it, just so that you think about the content here as I read. Listen to uh, the word of the Lord in John 10, verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods? If he has called them gods, to whom the word, the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. So as we consider this, uh, this portion, undoubtedly we have to get a little background and that is, um, our text today finishes the discourse started in verse 24 between, the G between Jesus and the Jews. Uh, we noticed that question that was there in verse 22. Now, it was Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. And so the setting is in Jerusalem, and it's in the wintertime. And Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's porch when these Jews just came and mobbed him, so to speak. They came and surrounded him, almost 
uh, as if they were endeavoring to intimidate him. And they very imperiously spoke to him and, and said, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are Christ, tell us plainly. And that initiated this conversation. And it was almost like uh, they demanded that Christ speak plainly to them about his identity, you know. And so uh, they say, how long must we wait? Why aren't you just speaking plainly to us? Matthew Henry says it was an act of impotence to lay the cause of their doubt on Christ. It was, you know, it was impudent of them to blame Christ for their doubt. Can you imagine that you would lay that, to char- that charge to Christ? How long are you going to keep us, so to speak, in suspense? If you are the Christ, just tell us plainly. <laughs> so as we consider this passage in our text, I, I simply hope and trust that we'll be able to see how Christ dealt with opposition. Christ, how he dealt with this opposition. And that is the title this morning of this message, is Opposition to the Good Shepherd. And I think there's just great beauty here in how Christ dealt with these people. How he loved them. And how he dealt with their opposition. And and the opposition is bracketed from verse 31 and then again in verse 39. And it's marked by having a rock in your hand. You know, it's, it, is, it is that uh, egregious, it is that defiant, so to speak, that we question you, Christ, but we, we're, we're reaching for rocks, just in case, you know. And, uh, and I don't know, it says in, they took up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them. He responded to them. And I, I want to just say, I want to just, just point out the obvious here, and that is the character, the beauty of the Lord Jesus in this account, how his virtue shone forth. Who of us here has not dealt with opposition? I think we all have dealt with those who oppose us, whether it's in our faith, whether it's in some other dealing. How do we deal with opposition? How do we approach it? What should be the Christ-like manner that we uh, endeavor to deal with it? Here in this passage, uh, Hebrews 12, 3 truly has an appropriate application. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Consider him who endured this hostility. There's a message here for us in this passage. So let's consider the Lord here. So in verse 25, uh, Jesus answered them. Um, that when, he, when they asked him, how long are you going to, to, to keep us in doubt or keep us in suspense? Uh, it is as if they were uh, saying, you know, uh, you, you, you haven't truly left a consistent testimony. We're not quite sure who, you know, what you're teaching and who you are. And, 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 and Christ says, look, I have told you and you do not believe. I have told you repeatedly. My words and my works call you to faith, not doubt. And uh, the opposition here that we see to Christ from verse 31 through 39 by these Jews is especially grievous in light of the glory of His grace in verses 27 through 30. If you remember, I spoke about the characteristics of His life that He gives. It says He gives His life to the sheep. And one of the characteristics that I spoke about is that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So there's a characteristic there of a sheep. When they hear His voice, they will follow so that was, that was the, the first point I think I left about this life of the sheep that comes from Christ. It, that is a characteristic is that we hear and we follow. The next is that it is a, 
I believe the next one, I, I don't have my list here in front of me, but I think the, the next one I mention is that it is a given life. It's not an earned life. I give them eternal life. I give them this life. It's a gift to us. This eternal life is a gift. And then we see that um, he says, and they shall follow me. I believe, it, I, believe I might have my, my uh, sequence out of order here. But it says that I know them and they follow me, that it is a present life. It's a current life. It's not just something that will come to us. It's a present life given to us by the shepherd. And then it's an eternal life. It's a future life. It's a glorious life. It's an everlasting life. And then it's a secure life. All of these are contained in verses 27 through 30. Just a, a you know, a... One train car load after the next just coming at us and saying, these are the blessings of the life the shepherd gives to us. You know what their response was? Groping for rocks. Where can I find a rock? Isn't that amazing? This is a mark. This passage, our text today, shows us the hard-heartedness of willing and willful unbelief. It is intentional unbelief. It's not a lack of information, people. It is willful, hard-hearted, obstinate unbelief. And we see that's the nature of this opposition that Christ is dealing with here. Hard-hearted unbelief. And so we see it was his explicit statement in verse 30 that triggered it. Uh, notice, let's, let's just read that again, verse 30. It was that that had them reaching for a deadly weapon. You know, if, it seems to me like uh, if they would have had, um, if they would have had concealed carry back then, it would have been, it would have been really bad, wouldn't it? We've been right at hand. Listen, he says, I and my father are one. It was that statement that made them so angry. That made them, um, and it was, it's, that, it's that statement also, I and my father are one. We are, in essence, we are together. Uh, is the same thing that caused them to do That brought the same response in 8.59, where it says, uh, John 8, verse 59, Then they took up stones to throw at him, and this is the previous statement. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And then you have it also in uh, 5.17. And 18, but Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, these people had a law that said if anyone blasphemed, that it's stoning is the appropriate stoning is the appropriate punishment for that. That um, capital punishment or um, to have somebody blaspheme God is worthy of death according to the Mosaic law. Now, that is kind of the backdrop for us here. Now, I want to say something about John, 20, uh, John 10, 29 that I don't think I spoke the other time. John 10, 29 is a beautiful example of this oneness. Notice what he says. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Verse 30, I and my Father are one. So think about it. My Father who has given these sheep to Christ. Normally, when you give something, you give give it to another's hand, it, it leaves your hand. And it... 
But this is not a contradiction. Uh, it, it, you know, if the father has given the sheep to the son, why is it stated that no one is able to pluck them out of the father's hand? In giving them to Christ, they were never given away from the Father, you see. They, were, they never left His hand. They were given to Christ, and so here is an example of the beautiful oneness of Christ and the Son, of, of Christ and the Father. That my Father who has given them to me, they were never taken out of His hand, and so no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father is greater than all. I and my Father are one. And so it's a, a beautiful picture of the oneness of Christ and the, and, and the Father. See there, the oneness in the protection and the perfection of the sheep. So in verse 32 now in our text, as we... Um, as we look at our text this morning, Jesus responds to their threat with a question. They were reaching for rocks and probably had them in their hand, and Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father, for which of those? Which of those do you stone me? Are you stoning me for giving sight to a blind man? Are you executing me for relieving a man of a 38-year infirmity? Or maybe it was for easing the hunger pangs of 5,000 people. Are you stoning me for that? Or defying the laws of nature by walking on the sea? Which of these good works are you stoning me for? What of the nobleman's son? Maybe, maybe I stepped on your toes then in some fashion and angered you. Why, why are you stoning me for that work? Was it turning water into wine? You see, all of these we've looked at in John until this point. Jesus tells them, these are good works from my Father. They are good works. Ask the people involved whether there was any injury at all in any of those good works. Was there anything that was, that was hurtful? Of course not. They were healing. They were, they were bringing provision and well-being and health and strength. They were good works. Notice... Brothers and sisters, the question implies perfect righteousness. There's, see, see, there's only good works to choose from. There, there are no others. They're all good works. In Acts 10, I think, uh, I'm not sure who was preaching that. But he, in, in, talking, in, in uh, speaking about the gospel and the, and, the work, and the ministry of the Lord Jesus, it speaks of him who went about doing good. That's in Acts 10, I think, verse 38. Describing the Lord Jesus' ministry, he went about doing good. Well, we know they are good works. There are no evil works. It implies a perfect righteousness. Which of those works do you stone me? Many good works I have shown you from my Father. They were personal. They were a personal and private good. Ask the blind man what it was like to come to sight. Was it good or not? They were a good work to the, in it, to the public. Ask the 5,000 people. And think about it this way. They were and are a universal good work even to us today. Why? is that they extend to us the declaration of who Jesus Christ is. Even today that ministry is ongoing in that the works of Jesus Christ declare to us His identity, you see. They are a declaration to us, these good works that He has done for us. 
Remember what John 20, what John says in the gospel here in John 20. In verse 30 and 31, he says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded here. They're not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Think about it. If you wouldn't have any recorded works of Christ, how much confidence would you have in him? I want to ask you, these works of the Lord Jesus, these, this ministry of his resounds down through the centuries to 2,000 years to us, 20 centuries later, these works of Christ are ministering their grace and goodness to us. That you might see that here is a historical record of the goodness of the power and majesty of Jesus Christ. As we heard this morning, His fullness was on display. They beckon down through the centuries with an invitation to faith. Remember, that's what we're talking about. Tell us plainly. And he says, well, I have. I have spoken to you. So he asked them, well, which of those good works are you executing me for? Oh, the Jews answered him and saying, well, it's not, it's not your good works. It's your words. That's what they said. It is not for your good works that we stoned you, but for your words which say which you are saying. They say, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man make yourself God. It's not for your works, it's for your words. Blasphemy, it means to vilify, to speak evil of. To rail against. Blasphemy is to speak evil of God. What a, what a really, really strong accusation. What a charge this is for the Son of God to hear this from these sinners, from these unbelievers. Notice how Christ deals with them. He says to them, is it not written in your law? And here, this, this passage here, this is the way Christ dealt with the opposition. Dear people, how do you deal with someone who opposes you? How do we do that? He says, is it not written? Is it not written in your law? And this idea of in your law is, I believe it simply means that in the revealed revelation, in the revelation that God has given to the Jewish people, it is recorded in this fashion. And He is giving them, here's another, here's another clue about how to deal with opposition, is to bring an argument from something that your opposition respects. You see. Here is an argument given from a, a point of view that they are willing to receive. It's not, it's not Greek to them. They respect the prophets, the, the Psalms. They, 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 they respect that. So he says, it is written in your law. And follow the logic here. Is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. That is a quotation from Psalm 82 in verse 6, where, and then Christ makes this point, and the Scripture cannot be broken. So that means that that is not a misquote. That is not a misprint. Christ Himself said, or, the, or God Himself in His Word said, you are God's. You see, He says, and in, in, you know, the Word cannot be broken. How do we understand this? Well, Psalm 82 and verse 6 is speaking of God-appointed judges and rulers of God's people. 
These gods, lowercase letters, are not, they're not demons or spirits. Even here in our passage, we, we say, we can, in verse 35, we can see, we can see that they are, these, these that he calls gods in verse 34 are those to whom the word of God came. Remember? Right here, uh, he makes it clear in this verse. These gods so-called are those to whom the word of God came. Remember how you see in, in a lot of the prophets how they open. And the word of God came, you know, in such and such a time to the prophet Joel. Or the word of God came to Micah. Or the word of God came to Jeremiah. Or the word of God came to etc., etc., etc. You see it all through the Old Testament in the prophets. The word of God came. And so it's this idea that, that God called these representatives of His gods. In Psalm 82 in verse 6. That is... That Jesus is saying, you know, is it not written in your law you are gods? Now the comparison here in verse 36 is, though the scripture says this, do you say this? You see that? The scripture says this. Are you willing to stick your neck out and say this? See, that's the that's the the comparison he's making. And then he says, Are you after what the scripture says, are you laying a charge of blasphemy on him whom God has set apart and sent into the world? Because I said I am the Son of God? If those men of the earth, and that is what those prophets were, they did not come down from heaven. Those smaller case gods of, of, of Psalm 82.6 were men of earth whom God had sent a message to. Okay, If those men of the earth can be called gods by infallible and inerrant scripture, how much more reasonable to call Him who is sent from heaven the Son of God. Do you see the logic? Have you got your thinking cap on? That's what I'm saying. This is a difficult passage. That, that if, if He who's come down from heaven, and that is the comparison, there's another comparison inside of this comparison, and that is that the, the comparison between the Word of God just coming to a man and God sanctifying and setting apart a Savior to send into the world. You see, there's a, there's that, the comparison is, a message came to, to Jeremiah, and he spoke it to the people. And then there is, the com, with, compared to the one who from eternity past was set apart, was sanctified, and sent 2,000 years ago. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as with the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See the difference? Message, messenger over here, Christ Jesus Himself here. Are you willing to say that this one who's sanctified and set apart by God Himself and sent into the world, that He blasphemes, when he claims to be the Son of God, when God called the messengers, those earthly men of the Old Testament, gods. That's his argument. Notice the Scripture never says of Christ that the Word of God came upon him. Never. What does the Scripture say about Christ? He is the Word who dwelt in eternity past. The Word became flesh, you see. He is the Word. And so that contrast is made here to these Jews who said, you blaspheme. And Christ shows them from the Scripture that God Himself has called the messengers those earthly messengers, gods, 
Now, he is the word made flesh. The contrast is between a messenger and God himself. I want to... Well, we, we, we even have a New Testament illustration of what it was saying about the word of the Lord coming, coming upon someone. Uh, in Luke uh, 2.39, you don't have to re, uh, turn to Luke 2. I'm sorry, Luke 3, verse 2. We have this said about John the Baptist. While Annas and Cephas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. You know, he was... A uh, the the word of God came to John, the John the Baptist, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now that is what is said of John the Baptist. Now listen to what John himself says about it in John three. If you would turn to John three, I want to spend just a little bit of time here and get John the Baptist's perspective. Remember, this is that lowercase God, so to speak. Uh, that is referenced in, um, he, he would be one of them. Uh, he's a messenger from, from God. Notice John uh, 3 and verse 27. In verse 26, they came to John and said, Hey, teacher, he whom you was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you testified, behold, he is baptizing. All are coming to him. John answered in verse 27, John 3. And said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. He's a messenger. So he has to speak what has been given to him. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. You see, it is Christ who has the bride. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is is John the Baptist's mentality. He who comes from above, you see it, is above all. He who is of the earth, that's John the Baptist, is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven, this glorious Savior of ours, is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. You know, he hasn't just heard it like John the Baptist. No, he's seen it. Jesus, he who dwelt in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. You know, that's the argument made in John 1.18. No man has seen God at any time. But he who dwells or abides in the bosom of the Father, he has come and declared him to us. You see. So what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent, there we have it again, speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. You know, the Lord Jesus did not have the Holy Spirit by measure. The fullness of the Spirit was with him. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So that was argument number one. In relation to their accusation, you blaspheme. You are speaking evil against Almighty God. We've got to kill you. And he says, well, wait a minute. And he, he, he gives them this argument from Scripture. That, that was argument number one from Christ against the charge of blasphemy to the Jews. Now, verse 37 and 38 contain argument number two. This is the argument from works. Let's let's read it again. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Let's, Let's just think about that a little bit. 
He who is the truth itself says, don't believe me. If my works don't line up with the Father. You know, he whom the Father has sanctified and sent, there in verse, uh, verse 36, he, who, he whom the Father has sent, sanctified and sent into the world must prove that commission by the works that he does. And he did it. He did prove that. But what condescension! Think about it, dear brothers. What condescension for Christ to say, you know, to, to, to voluntarily lower himself to our level to call us to faith. He who spoke the world into existence. Think about it. He says, don't believe me if my works don't testify of the Father. If my works don't line up with the Holy God, then don't believe me. But this was the one who literally spoke us into existence who created the world with a spoken word who could say peace be still and wind and sea obeyed him and he is saying i'm not asking you to believe me unless my works line up unless my works agree remember in in uh when the Pharisees sent um, the officers to take him and Christ spoke to them and the officers returned without him and they had to answer to those who sent them and said, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered and said, never man spoke like this man. <laughs> never did anyone speak like this man. And, and this, is, this is true because never was there a man on earth before Christ who actually had spoken the earth into existence. Never man spoke like this man. And here is an important point that I want to, I want to bring out to you. Here in this passage, the very nature and goodness of Christ is that He is not asking you to believe without giving us ample evidence that we should. Think about it. Sometimes we say things like, just do it. Not Christ. He is asking you to believe in Him. He's asking me to believe in Him. But then He gives us all this wonderful evidence. You see the goodness of God in these good works? The kindness that He shows us in, in, in living it out before us and in inviting us to investigate my works? Don't believe my words, even though I could speak another world into existence. Don't, don't just listen to my words and so he is, he is not asking us to believe without evidence. And truly, verse 38, he gently and graciously, Christ asked them to inspect his works that they may come to know and believe. Hmm. He says here, but if I do the works of my Father who sent me, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and that you may come to understand. Here's another invitation. Inspect my life. Inspect my ministry. Inspect the things that I've done so that you might come to know and believe. And you know, brothers and sisters, that's still the exhortation to us today. Look on the life of Christ. Has there ever been recorded anywhere the nature of this person? That you might come to know and believe that the Father indeed is in me and I in him. I have to read a, a little portion of scripture out of the high priestly prayer of John 17. I'll just read uh, three or four verses here. 
In John 17, in verse 3, it says this way, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that, which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see... If um, and, and we see that, that there was a laying aside of some of the glory for Christ to come. If he would have been, if he would have, if he would have had the fullness of his Father's glory upon him, they probably couldn't beheld his face and lived. And now he is asking for a restoration or, or a giving back of that glory with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see how crude and villainous their doubt was. How full of vitriol it was. How they surrounded him and said this, show us, show us who you are. You know, it comes not from lack of information, but from lack of compliance. They said their opposition stems not from his works, but rather from his words, yet... They contradict themselves in, verse, in, uh, in chapter 11, in this very next chapter, on, on this glorious miracle of bringing Lazarus back from corruption, from putrefaction, from death. And notice what they say in verse 11 of um, chapter 11, verse 46. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. <laughs> you see, now that we're focused on his works, he's, he, he works all these signs. And, and if, if we leave him alone, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, now you see where the, where the problem lie. They will come, and they will no longer follow us, you see. You know, if, if we leave Jesus alone, everybody's going to follow him. And, and, you know, we're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our place of prominence. And so this is what the problem is. They had an agenda that did not fit the agenda of the Lord Jesus, in, that did not fit the Father's kingdom. didn't fit. Here they were saying, oh, it's not about your works. Then over here it is about his works. They're no longer worried about his words over here in John 11. No, it's his works there. See, it's the nature of unbelief. If you, if you take the props out from in one area, they'll prop it up over here with something else. Because it's willful, remember. It is willful unbelief. It is intentional unbelief. It is, a, it is a, a belief that's propped up by one argument or the other. You kick this one out, they put another leg under it. That's what we see here. And Christ so gently, so graciously keeps inviting them. He responds to them. Just look at my works. If you're not going to listen to my words, look at my works and see if they don't line up. That you may come to understand that the Father is in me and I am in Him. And they sought again to seize Him. You see that? They tried again to grab a hold of Him. In verse 39, but He escaped out of their hand. So this is what un that willful unbelief looks like. Now I want to make another point here um, from this argument from works. Christ willingly proved His commission by His works. Do you see that? He, he willingly said, I am willing to commit to living in such a way that my commission is proved by my works. Isn't that very similar to what he asks from us? It is, isn't it? He wants you and I to live in such a way that we're proving that we belong to Christ. He was willing to do that for us. 
Now he's asking you in a similar way to do that for him. Listen, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, it's, it's, Jesus said, as you sent me, so now sent I them, John 17. As you have sent me, so I sent you to live your life in such a way that people know that you are a believer. I think it's just a beautiful thing of how Christ was so willing to walk before us. Now notice verse 36 again. Now here's something that I I would love for all of you to see. It's a way of interpreting the Scripture. It's a way for us to, to, um, to use one Scripture to understand another. Notice verse 36 again. Where did Jesus say that I am the Son of God? Notice He says, You... Do you say of him whom the Father sanctify and send to the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Where did he say that, I am the Son of God? He didn't say it in so many words, did he? He did not say it in so many words, but he absolutely meant that. The truth was absolutely that. You see, when he said, I and my Father are one, that's what he was saying. I am the Son of God. You see, he actually, that's how he interpreted his own words in verse 27 and through 30. That's how he, uh, that's what he meant. That's the proper conclusion of what he said in verses 27 through 30, that he is the Son of God. And it is confirmed to us by the Lord himself in, chapter, in verse 36. See, I, I think it's a beautiful way for us to understand these verses back here by what he himself says in verse 36. I am the Son of God. You see, he doesn't refute that they... And when they, when they said you're, you, you make yourself God, he doesn't refute that. He's not saying they're wrong. They absolutely understood what he was saying. But he didn't make himself that. I mean, he, he's, he is God. But he's more than being a man, you see. And so it is helpful for us to see these things and we see... Um, and the way that we can use one scripture to confirm another. So that is undoubtedly what he meant. Well, I want to just point out in this confrontation, they were reaching for rocks, and he said, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. Let me back down. Let, let, let me rephrase that. Let me say that, let, let, no. The same conclusion that made them go for rocks in verse 31 is said again in verse 39, verse verse 38. Don't you just love it? His commitment to saying what they needed to hear, he did not back down. He did not back away. He stood there and told it to them in a different way. And it made them do the exact same response. You see... We're not called to be pansies and to just be pushed over when there's opposition that we must deal with. No. Gently tell it to them another way. Show them again from the Scripture. Show them here. Show them there. Invite them to join you in your understanding. You see, that's what the Lord did. He never backed away. But it's a gentle, loving, gracious invitation that you may believe and know these things. He reinforced his previous statement with these two arguments. And he did not back down from his claim of equality with the Father, rather the opposite. That they might, he spoke to them so that they might come to know and understand this truth. How long-suffering indeed our Lord is with us. 
It's a beautiful picture of the character of Christ here. I want to just quickly close with uh, 40 and 42 as we consider that as he, as he escaped out of their hand, you know, he just, I, I don't know how he did that. He just, he may have just blinded them temporarily. It, it, it doesn't matter. He, he, it was not as he was fleeing from them defeated. Of course not. He simply left them in their in their unbelief, and he went away again beyond the Jordan. This is, would be back to where John the Baptist had, had ministered. And there uh, many came to him, and they said, Well, you know, John performed no sign. But all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And what was the message that John said? There's one who's coming uh, after me is greater than I. That was the testimony of John. He said, Repent. Repent, turn from your wicked ways. And it's like Matthew Henry says, the ministry of the gospel finds good fruit where repentance has been preached before. Uh, in this little section, we see the contrast between the Jewish rulers in Jerusalem and the simple folks outlying on the other side of the Jordan, how they received Christ. There's a contrast here of how Jerusalem rejected him and how those on the other side of the Jordan, out in the desert regions where John the Baptist had preached, how they received him. How they received him. It is here, right here in verses 40 through 42. They compared what John had spoke about him and they said, everything he said is true. Though John didn't do any miracles, but this man does all these signs and they believed in him. Many believed in him there. Just a, a, a beautiful picture. So let's uh, simply look, take this passage, this opposition to the Good Shepherd, and consider how that they were pushing away the very life that they needed. They were pushing it away. They were um, rejecting their only hope. And Christ offered it to them again. He said, that you may know and believe. And so um, I, I just find this a refreshing uh, close to this uh, John chapter 10. That the Savior, He is our good shepherd. He continually brings what we need in front of us. Let's close with a word of prayer. Gracious Lord, I pray this passage of Scripture would inflame our hearts to be to emulate the Lord Jesus in our opposition in those who are against us, whether it's in our faith or whether it's whatever it is, Lord, that we would be gracious and kind as the Lord Jesus has shown us here in this passage. Father, I pray we might believe and that we might be willing to let our work speak for us and that we invite people, that when we invite people to the life that we enjoy, that they might not find evil works in our lives instead. Father, forgive us where we have a conflicting testimony and help us to speak with one word and with one work. Thank you for your great goodness to us through Christ. Amen.